Hello, everyone. Welcome to the final V Brown bag of this year. Uh, as part of Commitmus, we've got Byron Schaller on tonight, who's going to walk you through the anatomy of a Git repository. How's it going, Byron? Good, John. How are you tonight? Living the dream. I, I'm not sure how I've managed to not talk to you almost at all since VMworld, um, but that <laughs> right? somehow happened. Uh, work and life? Yeah. 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 Uh, a few quick show notes. Uh, our Twitter accounts at vbrownbag, at vbrownbag, Latam, and Amia, and also the new Brazil show, which is going on, uh, I think right now their current cadence is every other Monday night. They're just kicking off, so uh, feel free to uh, connect with them and also pop uh, questions up with the hashtag vbrownbag. I'll be keeping an eye on that. Again, our guest tonight, Byron Schaller. I'm your host, uh, Jonathan Frappier, so any questions, uh, ping me on Twitter, and I'll get those to Brian. To Byron, it's been a long time. Uh, Commitment <laughs> is going on. Uh, I think the current plan, uh, myself and, and Matt, Brenda, and Rob sort of handed off Commitment this year. Uh, I think the current plan is to go back to the roots a little bit and start this uh, right around Christmas Day, the 25th, for the 12 days of Commitment. And uh, hop into uh, our Slack group if you've got questions. If you're new to Git, we've got a lot of great content out there from the last couple of years to help you sort of get the basics down and, and learn how to work with others. And uh, any questions, you know, feel free to ask in the Slack or on Twitter. We've also got a Commitness Twitter account, which is at Commitness. Uh, end of year giveaway, we announced the winners uh, just a short while ago. Uh, so a huge thank you to all of our sponsors for this year's end of year giveaway, Expedient, Nutanix, uh, Rubrik, RuneCast, ComTrade, Druva, and Ubiquity. Uh, so thank you to all of those uh, sponsors for the prizes. And anyone who did win, you'll be getting an uh, email shortly uh, from me. My name's Jonathan Frappier. You may have recognized me from such blog posts as just about everything on vbrownbag.com lately, so hopefully you uh, don't question my authenticity when I contact you this year. And with that, I am finally ready, Byron, if you are to make you presenter. I am. If I figure out how to share again, let's see here. You should be presenter-ish. All right. Um, let's see here. Uh, nope. Okay. Give me one second here. Let me figure out how to do this. And show screen. All right. So are you seeing just one screen there or all the screens? <laughs> I am seeing a GitHub repository right now. Great. Okay. That's what you should be seeing. All right. So get rid of this. Okay, so yeah, um, I was thinking about what to uh, talk about this evening and I uh, wanted to go back to basics a little bit. Um, when I first started using GitHub uh, a while ago, there was all the stuff that was not the code in the repo that I just basically ignored uh, for a long time and uh, realized that uh, all the stuff means things and is useful and wanted to talk about uh, kind of all the stuff in a Git repo that's not code that you should know about, you should be using. Um, get some resources on, to get you more info about them and really just improve the quality of your own repos as well as being able to understand other people's better. So with that, I've got uh, an example repo uh, here that I just kind of put together. Um, things that I, I, I want to talk about are uh, 
spec and test and uh, what test files are, where, where they live, uh, what they do, and how to, how to use some example ones. Um, the getting nor file, I think this is uh, heavily underutilized. Um, there's some really easy ways to create these and they'll make your Git your project cleaner and better and everyone will thank you when you're not uploading binaries. Um, the Docker files are fairly self-explanatory at this point, but I want to talk about how they're being commonly used in code repos. Um, licenses, uh, what, what kinds there are, what they mean, what you can do with them, what you can't. Um, how to make a good readme and just markdown in general. And then with markdown, talking about change logs and why you should use them um, and uh, what, what they should look like and what, what good ones are made of. Um, we're going to skip over this little uh, code snippet here and then talk about uh, build files. So for automated builds, uh, I'm using Travis here as an example. Um, but how those are put together, what those do, and uh, what those look like. So, kind of start at the, at the beginning and uh, start talking about what the, a license is. So, you're going to see this little license file in most GitHub repos. Most of them can be auto created. Um, and you're going to see different kinds of, of licenses. Uh, usually, you'll see something along the lines of either an MIT license, an Apache license, or a GPL version license, like one, two, three, or there's lots of GPL licenses. Um, you may see something like an unlicensed or uh, a Creative Commons license. That's a little less common. Uh, but the three main ones, um, sort of the, the, the MIT license is the most permissive license uh, there is out there. Um, it's the one I have on, on, on this uh, repo. And you see it shows up here when you use an official license um, that shows there. But when you look at it, it is super duper short. Um, that is the sum total of it basically. It is uh, super per permissive. It means that uh, you disavow any like liability or warranty with this, uh, but anyone can copy it and reuse it and modify it and distribute it really as much as they want. Um, the goal is to make you not liable for anything that they do with it, but at the same time, give them permission to basically take your code and do their own thing however they see fit. Um, the second one is the Apache license, which is basically the same thing but uh, significantly longer from a wording perspective for with a bunch of lawyer talk um, that basically spells that out in more, more certain terms. Uh, but it, it, it is usually equally as permissive. Uh, again, it has warranty. Um, one reason you may want to use Apache over MIT is for patent reasons. Um, basically, people who try to encumber you because of patent trolls or whatever later on down the line, um, the Apache license protects you from that. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, when you start getting to the more restrictive licenses, like the GPL series, um, the main thing there is it, what either you do with someone else's work or someone else does with your work um, has restrictions on it. And that usually comes in the form of if you modify it or include it in your uh, source code, then you have to make your source code available freely um, and open. Uh, there's some other licenses that are more restrictive that uh, require upstream contribution and things like that. Um, but basically, the, the moral of the story is figure out what you want to enable people to do, what you expect of the use of your code, pick the right license, and then keep one in your repo. Um, if something weird online happens, it'll it, it'll it'll cover you. But either way, it it really just could form. Um, when you create a GitHub repo, you have an option to select a number of licenses to auto-include. Just you know, check that box and you're good to go. Um, otherwise, there are several examples out there um, on GitHub that you can just add after the fact. 
Um, and if you're torn on kind of what license to use for open source projects, uh, this article here on, I believe it's Exigy, uh, of which license should I use is is pretty good. It, it goes into a lot more detail about uh, what they cover um, and just really in broad strokes. Um, but if you have questions, I would definitely refer you back here to to, to this article. Um, take a look or just do a Google search on it. There's several others that go way more in depth from a legal standpoint um, or have uh, questions you can answer to help steer you into the right license to use. So that's licenses. Um, use them and read them and at least know which one you're using so you don't get in trouble later. Um, the next is the get ignore file. So your get ignore file is really super useful for a number of reasons. First off, there's there's lots of stuff that's going to be auto-generated uh, depending on the language you use that you're not going to want to have uploaded to your repo. So your TIM files and your uh, uh, compiled binaries, if you have those, any kind of IDE uh, trimmings and support, uh, TIM uh, yard docs into that, lock files, all these stuff that you're going to use in, in the creation of code that just really have no place in your uh, repo. Um, so here I've got an example one. Uh, this is the base uh, Ruby getting nor file. Um, again, when you create a project on GitHub, if you use the the web page to do it, they're going to uh, give you an option to auto include a get include file, and they're going to give you an option of basically every language ever invented uh, or close to it um, to choose from, and it's going to cover most of your needs. Um, if you have any uh, sub projects or other things in here that you also want to exclude or multiple products maybe in the same directory um, for whatever reason just uh, edit your get your dot uh, get ignore file uh, commit push it up and it will no longer uh, be staged when you do your ads um, if you're not using github but are using git and still want to use a get ignore um, there are plenty of fine examples uh, under github slash git ignore repo. I believe these are the same ones that you can actually apply when you choose from the dropdown list. As you see, there's there's a, a git ignore file for basically everything. Um, just copy these, whichever one you want to use, uh, put it in your, dire in your directory of the code, change it to uh, dot git ignore, and really you're good to go. Um, Again, you know, things that are, that are not your code or not your tests or in you know, output directories, things like that, should always be in your getting nor. It keeps your repo clean. Make sure that uh, when you're doing like you know, PRs or merges, stuff like that, that all all those are compliant. Um, really helpful to use. Uh, so the next one I kind of want to talk about is something that seems self-explanatory, although I know mine were terrible for a long time, and I've read others that were not helpful either, and that is the readme.md. So your readme.md on GitHub is going to display basically as the title page of your repo. Um, I found a really great example that I liked that I think I closed, but I will find it again. Uh, otherwise, you can take a look at it here uh, just on, on, on my repo of what a readme should look like. Um, I like this format. I think it's very good. 
I think it's very clear as to what you should include and 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 why. Uh, I mean, you should always title and describe your project. They have a quick getting started section. So if someone wants to actually take this code and run it locally, what do they have to do to get up and running You know, really in as concise a format as possible? If they're ignore or if they're, if they're going to modify it and you have tests included, explain the tests. Um, explain how you have the tests set up that are already in there. Explain how to add tests um, and any style that you want to be uh, um, used really. This is super important when you have uh, you know, people working on multiple projects where you're uh, submitting a PR to somebody else's project. The README should have um, contribution instructions or at least uh, uh, a link to more formal contribution instructions as to what they expect to see, what your PR should include, um, what tests need to pass, what, what they should look like, what they expect. Um, and then, yeah, just any kind of additional notes that you want to have about, you know, how it was built. Um, yeah, again, contributing sections here. Um, most people use semantic versioning, uh, so a lot here. You know, who wrote it? License acknowledgments, all, all, all that stuff. A good README is going to include all these things. Um, another thing that uh, it, when you're building your README, and it, obviously it's it's in Markdown, specifically GitHub Markdown. Um, this repo right here, uh, Adam-P slash Markdown-Here, um, is has a uh, the wiki attached is a fantastic introduction to uh, Markdown in general, and then there's a Markdown cheat sheet page uh, that if you have any questions on, you know, headers and lines and emphasis and block quotes and all that stuff, um, is is just a really fabulous resource to to, to learn Markdown. Um, if you are using an editor like Atom, which I highly recommend, um, and you open up a Markdown file, you're going to have linting and all that in Markdown already done for you. Um, so you can just select uh, Markdown, and all these should light up, and then you know you're good. So learn Markdown, love Markdown, and use Markdown, not just for readmes, but also for change logs. So I see a lot of different kinds of change logs that people use. Um, some change logs are just outputs of, of the git logs or a listing of commits or just, you know, basically, you know, I uploaded a thing here. Um, that's not super useful for humans. So when you're doing change logs, what you really want to focus on is having a change log that is useful. Um, this keepachangelog.com, I think, is, is, does a really nice job of explaining what it should be. And what they say is, is, is basically a, a change log is basically like release notes. Um, they choose to call it change log here. I'm not sure why, but they're, 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 they're kind of the same thing. Um, so what that means is a good change log is going to be a chronological version of features and changes to the project that is readable by humans. Um, so someone should be able to take a look at, at your change log since the last version, quickly glance at you know, the top and understand exactly what has changed, how it affects them, any features that are added, uh, anything that they need to be made aware of, just like release notes do, right? Except it's a running log for your entire project's history. Um, if you are going to be sharing this with the world and telling the people to use your thing, 
and, and have versions, you really should be using a readable change log. It's going to make people's lives a lot easier. And yours too when, when uh, reading other folks. So again, highly recommend using change logs. Change logs again, read it in Markdown uh, so they render all nice and pretty uh, in GitHub. But uh, something I you you sh you should be doing. Now for kind of trickier stuff, um, we'll start with uh, our Travis.yaml here. So this repo, uh, basically what I've told to do is it's it's linked in with uh, Travis, uh, which is a online uh, uh, free CI tool. You go to uh, things like travis-ci.org. Um, it's a free build tool for open source uh, projects. So if you have a public repo on GitHub, uh, Travis is free to use. Um, it's just like Jenkins or uh, uh, Team City or anything like that. Um, and the thing with Travis is Travis needs to know how to build your project, so it requires you to have a Travis.yaml file uh, in your repo. So when you sync your uh, repo to Travis, when it says, looks for a change, it's going to take your Travis.yaml file and do whatever it says. Um, let's take a look at one here. So it's, again, in YAML. So standard YAML rules apply. Uh, and it's going to have three main sections and then kind of some subsections. So the three main sections are install, script, and deploy. So this is a really simple one where basically what it does is logs into Docker Hub, tests your, the credentials are working, echoes it back, uh, does a you know, Docker you know, <laughs> list of services, and then exits. Um, on success, it echoes back and says, you know, this pull uh, from this branch at this tag uh, was successful. Um, there's so much more you can do here. So you have a before install, a install, and after install. And what install does is any prep that you need to run on the, the build runner uh, to, to, to build and test and do whatever to your thing. So if you need to run uh, um, app to install some packages, uh, like say that you want to run server spec, which we'll talk about here in a sec, you'll need to install RVM, and you'll need to download the server spec gym, and you'll need to set up uh, some of that config up front. All that's done in the install section of your, of your build uh, YAML file. Um, your script is what you're actually doing. So in the case of uh, server spec, which we'll talk about here in a bit, um, we're basically going to uh, run our, our, our spec file uh, through our spec in Ruby. It's going to do some th things and spit out uh, error codes. Um, so let's talk about error codes for a second. When something at the install or basically the non-script part of your build fails, uh, you'll get a uh, build error. Uh, and a warning, uh, either a warning or an error, most likely an error. Um, if your script part returns a non-zero exit code for whatever it does, you will get a failed build and a broken build. Um, if you have badging enabled back and forth between GitHub and, and Travis, it'll actually you know, say build not passing or build failed, build broken, um, depending on how you have it set up. But uh, that that's important to know. So your, your install stuff, isn't going to break your build. Your script will break your build. Um, the deploy option depends on what build system you're using. So in Travis, you can deploy like 
Engine Yard or Heroku or some other stuff that they have, have integrated, any of those native integrations are going to be in your deploy section. Um, and then afterwards, you can have, you know, after success, you know, log back some stuff. You can have, after failure, log back some stuff just to make your, your, your logs easier to read and understand what's, what's going on. Um, these come in all sorts of flavors as far as build files go. Um, you can have uh, build files for Team City. They have their own format. Travis has their format. Worker has their own format. Basically, what, whatever system you're using, uh, learn what their format is. It's probably in some kind of YAML or JSON or something like that. XML if you're really unlucky. Um, learn what it does, use it, and that's going to uh, do a couple of things. For, first off, it keeps all of your build information with your code, which is great because as your your pipe changes for whatever reason or how you're building your app changes or your tests that you're running are changing um, as far as like adding more tests to run, uh, having that version with your code really keeps that consistent, up to date. Uh, again, if you're on larger projects, it's super important if you have multiple contributors that um, everyone is building in the same way. Uh, and having this build file integrated into your Git repo makes that possible. So use that and love that. Uh, so spec files and really just tests in general. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, server spec just because this is usually an infrastructure kind of focused crowd. Um, server spec is a great example of a test format that you can use to test building infrastructure. So you have a Chef repo or a Terraform repo or uh, some Docker files uh, that you're, 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 you're building out and you want to test your infrastructure from a behavioral standpoint uh, using a CI tool, uh, ServerSpec is great for that. Um, it is uh, based on RSpec, so Ruby is re re required. ServerSpec itself is a Ruby gem um, super easy to get in, uh, up and running. You basically just gem install it, and then you're good to go. Um, it'll output a bunch of different configs manually if you want to use ServiceSpec init. You can also codify that stuff. And then you're going to write a uh, spec.rb file, which is going to be held in your repo under your spec folder, which is at the root of your repo the name of whatever you want to call your thing, and then your spec file. So spec files, is, or, uh, service spec files the same conventions basically as RSpec does for Ruby. Um, RSpec is, is, is Ruby's uh, test harness. Um, so you have stuff like JUnit uh, for, for Java or other test frameworks for or other languages, but uh, I know this one, so I'll talk about this. Um, it's pretty straightforward. So, so basically, what you are doing is, uh, you are, so you have what's called a describe block. A describe block is basically saying, so your package or your service or your port, um, things like that, uh, is what you want to test. You want to test it uh, conditionally, uh, sometimes. So. Uh, here we have different ones for OS family is Red Hat or Ubuntu. Um, and then what is testing? So on the first line, we're, or it's third line, we're describing the HTTPD package, so Apache. If it's, if it's on Red Hat, then it should be installed. 
So should is a keyword. Be installed is basically part of should. Um, so your things like be installed, be enabled, be running. Um, it's all very English friendly for the most part once you learn the describe block format. So it's it's describe, then what you're describing, so your 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 type of thing and the the object itself, any kind of conditionals, and then do the block of, of its statements and then end. And so this is going to go through and return a success or failure for each described block. So things to notice here, so like Apache is called different package names under Red Hat and Ubuntu. Um, so you, you you call things out like that. It's only going to run for your, your proper OS family in, in this case. Um, but then all of them, you know, should have port 80 open. So we're just, we're describing the, the port of 80 of it should be listening. Um, it's all pretty straightforward. So if you're using, you know, some kind of language as its own test framework, you should, you should learn that test framework and, and, and utilize these kind of tests. When you see spec directories and other people's code, that's what they are. So, uh, they, they're there for testing. And if you're doing any kind of infrastructure deployments, um, Highly recommend looking at server spec. It's just it's it, it's pretty straightforward, and it, it, it's a nice way to use the CI pipeline to test what you're deploying into your environment before you do. Um, so hopefully your deployments will go better. Right. That is the I guess full high level overview. Oh yeah. By the way, the server spec is a server spec work, right? So uh, oh. And I also forgot for the Travis stuff uh, on the Travis docs under the customizing the build. I can see they have full things of all the things you can do and how they all work and stuff like that in the, the, the documentation. You have all these optional steps, but really it's it's about you know the install section, the script section, and the deploy section. Um, if you have any questions about that, reach out to me on Twitter or read up on it here. Um, again, if you're using uh, a Open GitHub public repo. Uh, Travis is free, so it's super nice to use. Um, used by lots of folks. We got a uh, question from the audience, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, no, no by all means. What is your? Uh, is there a, a preference, rule of thumb, personal preference on whether you use a single repository per project, or you stick all of your projects in a sing one repository? You have That's a really, really good question. Um, so I put it as one project per repo, um, just because it keeps all the files clean when I'm doing any editing in either Atom or an IDE, um, and they're all related. So if you have like a project that has different like sub modules, um, I would break those out as well, um, and then just have references to them in your your documentation, but, but but really, if I'm going to work on something as a discrete you know, block of code that I'm going to either you know you run on its own or compile or or package in any kind of way, um, the output of that package should be, or I guess that that package should be the output of one repository. That's I guess kind of the way I look at it. Um, so if I'm going to make a gem or an RPM or a Docker image or you know a Terraform plan or something. Um, each of those, for me, needs to have its own repo. 
Um, it's also going to be a lot cleaner later on, especially once you get you know bloated and you have several you know 10, 20, 30 projects in like one repo. It's going to get to a point where it's just really unwieldy to manage. And what about uh, at least on GitHub? Uh, when and where would you use GIST? So GIST for things that are not code or not related to the code. So like in your repo, like so like you're reading, like you're reading your change log and all, and, and all this stuff are not code, um, but they are related to the code. So if you want to uh, write something on and store it in GitHub that is not related to a code base, a gist is a very good place to do that. So like just a random list of things to do or you know an explanation of how to do a thing um, are all good times to use gists where a repo is probably not called for um, but is still a way to store for free in GitHub. Basically just any kind of like non-anonymous pastebin kind of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, that's all the questions we got from um, from the audience. Last call, going once, going twice. That is 2017 V Brown Bag. I'm glad I got to end it with you. <laughs> always, John. I, I, I always enjoy talking to you. But uh, yeah, um, again, if anyone has any questions, please reach out on Twitter and uh, we have or the uh, commitment Slack as well is a, a great place for these kind of questions. Um, again, just uh, if you see something in a repo and you don't know what it is or why it's there, uh, ask. It's probably important. So uh, check it out, folks. But thanks, John. Cool. Thank you.